And a snap. A snap. And a clap and a snap. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Alex. Hi, Caitlin. How's it going today? It's fall now. Good. Oh my god, I love it so much. The solstice is on my birthday this year. Yay! Happy birthday little, to you. Oh, thanks. And little fall, baby. Wait, and it's the equinox. Solstice oh, did is I, fall. Did I say fall is, solstice. Um, you said fall Whoops. solstice. It's the equinox. <laughs> Sorry. It's the equinox. I have to. No, thank you. Thank you for correcting me. Me and Caitlin took, uh, we used these filters today that said, uh, what was your red flag? <laughs> And mine was that I'm a nerd, which is like not a red flag to me. No. And your and yours is isn't is into astrology. Too into too astrology <laughs> which I don't see as a red flag, but I guess no, it could just, be for some people. It's just a, your opinion, man. But I mean, if that's a red flag for you, then I probably don't want to hang out with you. So goodbye. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's you can't fine. Handle my Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, fucking Star Trek, fucking shit, nerdy shit, then I don't want to be friends with you anyway. Yep. Fuck you. Yep. Bye. <laughs> Speaking of Lord of the Rings and nerdy shit, this week's what? episode has us oh. going to the land where he hails from. J.R.R. Tolkien hails from. Yes. The, and me. And you and your familia. And it yeah. is the magical land of England. That is yeah. ripe with the cryptids, let me tell oh, you. And hauntings and pretty much everything else. Yeah. But before um, we get into that, we got a yes. book of the time. We have a book of the time and it's the same book. We're reading the same book. I sent Alex a picture <laughs> of the book that I was reading and she said, I just bought that book yesterday. And I said, <laughs> amazing. And it is so good <laughs> yeah it's great it's a quick read and it's like really addicting and now we're gonna say what the title is because i'm oh, yeah, sure I you're didn't even say that. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you're just <laughs> shaking in your boots just your bones are rattling for With it anticipation <laughs> <laughs> it's the butcher and the wren by elena Earhart. And if you listen to this podcast and you don't listen to Morbid... You should. Well, you should, for sure. Also, I highly doubt that there's anyone that's into podcasts that hasn't at least heard some episodes of yeah. Morbid. Um, it's my favorite podcast. I, like, literally got Wondery Plus just to listen Amazing. to faster. Um, I'm addicted to Elena and Ash. They're so She's funny addicted. and smart. And But Elena wrote this incredible yep. book. The Butcher and the Wren, and it is fucking intense. I love man. it. It's gory and very visceral, and the way she writes, it's like I picture it all happening. Yeah, I like the way that she writes. It's cool. Yeah, I do too. It's interesting because she like goes in and out of like like flashbacks mm -hmm. and things sometimes, and then she'll go into the present tense, and that's how you know the character is like back in the moment that they're yeah. in. And I think that's really interesting. It's like very literary to to do that. And to do so, it right. <laughs> as a writer, I really am oh, impressed. Awesome. So. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. Uh, it's, I've been blowing through the chapters and some of them are like nice and short, which I actually really like. And it goes um, back and forth between two characters, like every other chapter, which I also really like. Um, yes. But yeah, highly recommend all... 
I so the last book of the time I did links to Powell's. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I'm I think I'm just going to continue doing links to Powell's because it's the biggest um, independent bookstore in the country, and it's in my based in my hometown. It's in Portland. Portland. Yeah. I guess not my hometown, Portland. but my town that is home now. Your town that you consider home. Yeah. There we go. Um, your town home. My town home. I don't have a town home. I do have a duplex, <laughs> but I don't have it. I just rent it. But um, I don't have I don't it. Have it. <laughs> don't get it twisted. I have no assets. Zero. Except maybe some highly desirable concert posters, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, same. And maybe some like first edition books, but that's mm-hmm. about, that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, England. England. Get into the background yeah, tell of me my home country. All about. Okay, all about. Tell me all about it. <laughs> um, so England is a country that is a part of the United Kingdom. And my mom's side of the family is all from there. She was there until she was 10. So she is a British citizen. And so am I. I have dual citizenship. That is so dope. And I'm in the process of getting my British passport, actually. Amazing. England shares land borders with Wales to its west and Scotland to its north. Inglis is separated from continental Europe by the North Sea to the east and the English Channel to the south. The country covers five-eighths of the island of Great Britain, which lies in the North Atlantic and includes over a hundred smaller islands, such as the Isle of Scilly <laughs> and the Isle of Wight and the Isle of Man. There's a lot of... Um, there's also like the island of Jersey, where that like, where basically the real version of Leatherface. Oh God, was basically fucking up. What? I'm gonna have to hear yeah, more about there, this. There's like at some there's, point. there's this guy who is basically the real version of Leatherface, and he was like terrorizing the island of Jersey. Shit. But that's a whole other story that I could cover and we don't have enough time. No, we do not because we have a lot to cover today. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And we're already seven minutes in. Okay. So the area now called England was first inhabited by modern humans during the upper Paleolithic period, but takes its name from the Angles. So a, a Germanic tribe deriving its name from the Anglia Peninsula who settled during the fifth and sixth centuries. England became a unified state in the 10th century and has had a significant cultural and legal impact on the wider world since the 15th century, to say the least. The English language, the English church, and English law, the basis for common law legal systems of many other countries around the world, developed in England and the country's parliamentary system of government has been widely adopted by other nations. But let's be real, it was forced upon most of not all of those nations. It wasn't really adopted willingly. So England's terrain is mostly low hills and plains, especially in central and southern England. However, there is upland and mountainous terrain in the north, especially when you get up towards Scotland. Mm -hmm. Um, The capital is London, which has the largest metropolitan area in the United Kingdom. England's population of 56.3 million comprises 84% of the population of the United Kingdom. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's all of the islands. It's Scotland. It's Britain. And it's- um, Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland, right. Yeah. And my mom grew up in this little town called Winchester. 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 <laughs> oh, how cute. Yeah. I don't know why she, everything she, British feels so cute to me. It, it is. It's very, like, cozy and cute. Yeah. 
It's very like cottage core. Which they have done a great time. Who whoever's doing their marketing has done an excellent job because <laughs> they are some colonizing motherfuckers that have oh, absolutely. like committed some atrocities. But all I think of when I think of them is like great British bake. Oh how cute. Oh how cute. Tea and crumpets. Oh. I bet little sprites <laughs> live in this glen. You know what I mean? Like there's no fucking in this mall. How do they all seem so cheery and nice and you know what I mean? I don't I don't get how they their PR team is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the media definitely um enforces that heavily right. as well. Right. And I mean we're one to talk. The US has done awful, awful <laughs> <Right>. things. <laughs> I'm not saying we're better hey no, we were saying. england first we were we were england first <laughs> so the kingdom of england and kingdom of scotland united in 1707 to create the kingdom of great britain in 1801 great britain was united with the kingdom of ireland to become the united kingdom of great britain in ireland and that's basically how the union jack was created mm-hmm. it's literally all three of those flags combined oh cool yeah 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 yeah. So since then, as a lot of you know, there was turmoil in Ireland over religion and borders, to simplify it. Yep. Um, and the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland were created, the latter wishing to retain its um, political unity with Great Britain. So there's the Republic of Ireland, which is in the south. Yeah. And uh, Northern Ireland in the north. And man, the troubles were rough when they yes, were going through absolutely. that splitting up. It was like a hundred years of fighting, which was awful. Yeah, I mean, there was like, there was a yeah, it's fucked up. I can we can talk about just that for hours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you haven't seen Dairy Girls on Netflix, oh, highly suggest. There's a the book Dairy Girls that it's, it's based so on good. is also really good. So <gasps> I minored in modern Irish literature, so I know a lot about oh, yeah. Irish stuff. But anyways, yeah, Dairy Girls is great. It is so good, and I love it just to listen to their accents, to be honest. Um, So, England has a temperate maritime climate. It's mild with temperatures not much lower than 32 degrees Fahrenheit in winter and not much higher than 90 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. So, kind of Portlandy. Fucking perfect. Yeah. Literally perfect. That sounds great. Um, this is definitely the temperature range my body and genes and soul require mm-hmm. <laughs> and are acclimated to. Yeah. Um, the weather is damp relatively frequently and rainfall is spread fairly evenly throughout the year. Oh, so they get summer rain and fall rain and winter rain and spring They rain. get a lot of they rain. They just get a lot of rain. Got it. <laughs> so English folklore developed over many centuries. Some of the characters and stories are present across England, but most belong to specific regions. Common folklore beings include pixies, giants, elves, boogeymen, trolls, goblins, and dwarves. There is also influenced um, there's also folklore that's influenced from German, Welsh, and French source- sources mm-hmm. featuring King Arthur, Camelot, Excalibur, Merlin, and the Knights of the Round Table. Yes. There's so much. <laughs> love it. So I love it. I love it so much. So folk figures are based on semi or actual historic people whose story has been passed down centuries. 
Lady Godiva, for instance, was said to have ridden naked on horseback through Coventry, and Hearn the Hunter is an equestrian ghost associated with Windsor Forest, and Great Park and Mother Shipton is the archetypal witch. On November 5th, people make bonfires, set off fireworks, and eat toffee apples in commemoration of the foiling of the gunpowder plot centered on Guy Fawkes. And if I remember correctly, I think Scandinavia also has something in the middle of November that's kind of Halloween-y, like kind of autumn harvesty type of thing. Um, but they didn't really adopt Halloween as a holiday until the U.S. kind of made it popular, which is interesting. The chivalrous bandit, such as Dick Turpin, is a reoccurring character, with Blackbeard as the archetypal pirate. There are various national and regional folk activities participated to this day, such as Morris dancing, maple dancing, rapper sword in the Northeast, longsword dance in Yorkshire, mummers play, bottle kicking in Le- Leicestershire, Le- Leicestershire. Okay. Yes. It's a lot of a lot of ease yeah. and cheese cheese rolling at Cooper's Hill. Do you oh know what cheese rolling yes. is? Yes. So I didn't know about this Ugh. until literally yesterday, and Danny pulled up a video of it on YouTube. And it is showing amazing. me amazing. It's hardcore. It's fucking great. It's like so moshing while falling it. down a hill. Yeah. If you guys haven't seen cheese rolling, look that shit up. Honestly, I don't great. even want to spoil it. Like, just look it up. Yeah, please. So I, yeah, good. I wrote down the I wrote down the description, but I'm just gonna have you guys trust me. Ch- check you do want to know? You <laughs> do. Really? You want to know? It's pretty hardcore. It's like the most British thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Hell yeah! And so, in short, there is a lot of folklore that has come out of England that is very prominent throughout the world. It probably has a lot to do with their conquering and colonial imperialist past, but. Hey, pixies and elves are pretty fucking sweet. (laughs) And uh, that's the background. Wow. Excellent job. Thank you. There's a lot of background on England. A, because your family's from there. And yeah. yeah, And B, because it's so well documented and we speak the language. So that always makes it easier to do research. Absolutely. Um, And kind of because of that, I ended up kind of deciding that there's so many cryptids in England that I have to touch on a lot of them instead Mm -hmm. of diving hella deep into just one. So I hope that's Mm -hmm. cool with you guys. And for all you listeners out there, please send me a message and let me know if you liked this format and want me to do more of this kind of thing, or if you prefer when we just pick one one and just go real hella deep. So let me know. Real hella deep. But for this one, I'm going to cover a lot of different cryptids. I'm also covering multiple things as well, because we kind of just wanted to do a rapid fire of all of these things, because there's, there's just so, so much. much. And it's so fun. <laughs> okay, cool. So to begin, England has always been, as you said, the home of legends and folklore. It's baked into the culture. It's a huge part of it, a part of life there. And while some of the creatures on our list might seem unbelievable, others are quite possible. As an island, England is the perfect location for some of these creatures to exist as they're separated from the rest of the world. So it makes sense that these creatures could have been trapped on the island and evolved differently than 
they could have in other places, hence the reason they never leave. Um, like hedgehogs. Like hedgehogs and like different endemic, you know, places that have like a high rate of endemic species like Australia or, you know, yeah, the Galapagos definitely. or something. A lot of times these islands, a lot of weird guys there that you never find anywhere else. So, mm-hmm. all right. So the first of some of these guys I'm going to go into are the big old kitties. So <laughs> Big old kitties. Big old kitties. There's a lot of big cats. <laughs> I've heard a couple yeah. of them. Um, the first one is the Beast of Exmoor. And the Beast of Exmoor is the most popular of the, quote, phantom cats believed to be stalking the fields of the English counties of Devon and I love Somerset. I love how there's multiple. Oh, there are. They, there are several. <laughs> We're going to do three of them, but there's more than that. Okay. The nocturnal English cryptid is usually described as looking like a large muscular cat with dark gray fur, and it has white patches around its head. One thing's for certain, Exmoor is the perfect place to be for wild animals in the UK. There's over 250 square miles of space in this national park, and it's carefully protected to preserve the natural world there. There's varied habitats and minimal human urbanization, resulting in a huge range of species that all choose to call this beautiful part of the country home. Wandering the many footpaths over Exmoor, you'll likely encounter red deer, wild Exmoor ponies, and a huge variety of birds and small mammals. Ponies? Yeah, like little, little ponies. Uh, like Sebastian? Like Sebastian. Little Sebastian. Little, little Pardon Sebastian. me. Bye, bye, little Sebastian. I have a shirt <laughs> that has little Sebastian on it, and then it says 5,000 candles in the wind. <laughs> You know, I don't think we've ever talked about Parks and Rec, but I love Parks and Rec. It's one of my favorites. I've seen every episode at least three times, probably. Me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, great. Well, okay, so carrying on. Uh, so there's little <laughs> Sebastians, lots of birds, and lots of different small mammals. Um, visitors can also join a deer safari group where they'll like go around and point out the different types of deers and be like, this is where the baby deer are. I don't know. It's pretty cute That's sounding. Cute. There's also an Exmoor guided walk for some expert knowledge on different flora and fauna there. Okay, so the cat, the beast. Although cited many times since the 1970s, definitive proof of the existence of the beast remains elusive. Witnesses report a large feline creature typically resembling a panther or a puma with dark gray or tan or black fur. It kind of ranges. So the beast is really large. It's much larger than a normal household cat. And most reports suggest that from nose to tail, it's somewhere in the region of one to two meters. So this is like... Six feet. Yeah, about six feet. So that's a big ass cat. That's a big cat. That's like as big as like a jaguar, like a big papa jaguar. So during the early 80s, there were like repeated large losses of sheep and lambs that increased the notoriety of the Beast of Exmoor. One example, there was a South Molten farmer that lost over a hundred sheep in the span of three months. Jesus. The injuries that he witnessed on his flock were suggestive of like some kind of giant cat. Um, There are like scratch marks and very sharp teeth marks and that kind of thing. Hmm. A farmer in Devon found a puma skull in 2006, which was confirmed by the British Big Cat Society. However, the official statement by the DEFRA outlined, quote, based on the evidence, Defra does not believe that there are big cats living in the wild in England. 
So some time ago, the possession of exotic species in the UK became very popular, and it was initially largely unregulated. And then during the 1960s, there was a law that was passed making it illegal to keep large cats in captivity as an individual. So this has led to theories of the release of a cougar or maybe a black leopard into the wild around this time in the 1960s. I could see that. Yeah. However, the typical 14-year lifespan of these species make it unlikely that a single animal would have accounted for all of these sightings. Hmm. Because there were sightings from, you know, the 60s all the way through the 80s and even a couple in the 2000s. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for it to only be one animal. Right. The skeptical might also assume that sightings are much more likely to be misidentified domestic cats, dogs, or deer. Certainly, livestock deaths could be attributed to wandering dogs or packs of wolves or things like that. But theories of hybrid species have also been discussed. The hybridization of a leopard and a puma was achieved in captivity by Carl Hagenbeck in England. Hmm. And... There was also, like, a big trend way back in the day in England for, like, vivisection, which is where you try to operate on two living animals to combine them, unfortunately, which is pretty gross and morbid. Um, Yeah, if you're into hearing more about that, please read The Island of Dr. Moreau. It's a novel, but it tells you all about that stuff, and it's trippy as fuck. it's gnarly. Yeah, it's scary. Um, Very unsettling. so maybe there's that. Maybe there's like some kind of new feline that isn't any of the ones that we're used to that, you know, lives in Exmoor. And the thing is, like with those hybrids, any male of any cat hybrid is almost always going to be sterile. So it's hard right. for the populations to reproduce. Right. So because of the popularity of the Exmoor beast, the Exmoor Zoo released a statement saying it believed the beast to be nothing more than a hybrid leopard with extra melanin. And they think that it was unethically released into the wild by private owners. That makes sense. Now we're going to get into the next kitty. The next kitty <laughs> is the beast of Bevendine. And the beast of Bevendine is an alien big cat from the Brighton and Hove area of England, and it's been reported more recently. So its first sighting was in 2008. And the Beast of Bevedine is another phantom cat. Most reports claim the cat to be roughly the size of a panther with black fur. It's believed to be responsible for the increased number of rabbit remains being found and the deaths of several dogs in the area. I know. Always sad when they kill a dog. The belief in the creature began to take hold in 2008 when locals compared strange sightings at the Holy Nativity Church Hall. So they all gathered together and talked about all their weird shit that's been going (laughs) on, Um, which is one meeting I wish I was invited to. (laughs) Since then, numerous people began claiming to have seen the large cat lurking in the undergrowth. So... um, Residents of the Bevedian area compared sightings in a meeting held at the church hall. They reported their dogs being frightened by the beast, with one claiming that his dog was even scratched by it. And a resident named Stuart Codal described his sightings as follows. At first, I thought it was another dog due to its size. It was walking between two bushes, and it was about three or four times the size of a normal cat. Resident Bill Batchelor claimed to have seen the beast on three different occasions. On one occasion, it had pounced on his pet 
dog while they were out walking. And Bachelor's report was unique as he described it as being sandy colored with a gray muzzle. And most reports up until that point were of black animals. That sounds so, like a mountain lion. That one did sound like a mountain lion to yeah. me. Then in 2010, resident Avis Carter reported seeing the beast on Bevendine Hill while picking apples. She described it as being larger than a normal cat with tabby-colored markings, but not in the style of a typical tabby cat. She watched it for a short while before it disappeared back into the undergrowth. When the British Big Cat Society investigated the sightings, they claimed it could be a panther. After resident Deborah Munn saw multiple felines in the area, there came claims that the beast of Benvedine may have been part of a breeding population of pumas or lynxes. And in response to these claims, Derek Bilston, founder of Sussex Big Cat Watch, said fewer people are using the countryside these days so big cats can wander around undisturbed. We don't know how many are out there. There could be two or three. There could be dozens. They can travel huge distances covering half the country in a night. Oh, half the county in a night. And so multiple sightings could all be one cat. And there's even a film called Young Hunters, The Beast of Benvedine, inspired by reports of the beast. I mean, it's super believable that people just released cats and now they're breeding in the wild. It right? Makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I guess like mountain lion attacks are not really common here in the US and mm -hmm. we have a shit ton of them. Yeah. So if they only have, if they have a smaller population there, then it's probably, I, I'm curious to know, like, if there have been any, at least close encounters with the people right. and the cats. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm curious too. I couldn't find anything saying that huh. in the very cursory search that I did, but yeah. I didn't go very deep on it. Um. So I have one more kitty for you. And this is the Beast of Bodmin Moor. And the Beast of Bodmin Moor is yet another phantom big cat thought to live in the Cornwall area of Britain. The beast was first spotted in 1978 after increased reports of mutilated livestock. So there's no doubt that Bodmin Moor is a creepy place. Should you happen to find yourself alone there as dusk is falling, try not to think about the layers of legend, horror, and mystery associated with this wild and rugged landscape. One of which is referred to as, you guessed it, the beast. They're all the beast, you know? They're the beasts of this place. So, the beast of Bodmin Moor is the result of some 60 sightings of a big black panther-like cat, supposedly three to five feet long and sporting white-yellow eyes, combined with numerous reports of mutilated livestock. The evidence was robust enough that in 1995, the government ordered an official investigation into the existence of such a beast. And the report finally concluded that there were no verifiable evidence of a big cat on Bodmin Moor, although it was careful to state that there was no evidence fully against it either. <laughs> okay. So they didn't find anything, basically. Shortly after the report was published, the public were flabbergasted when a small boy found a leopard skull lying on the banks of the River Fowey. Big cat speculation reached a fever pitch at that point in time. Had it escaped from a nearby zoo... Was it the beast responsible for the recent mutilations? The Natural History Museum, boringly, soon found the leopard skull to have been imported into the country, along with its corresponding leopard skin rug. But, once again, the controversy died down for a little while, although sightings were still reported every once in a while. 
1998, video footage was released that clearly showed a big black animal, probably a big cat, around three and a half feet long. The video was described by the curator of New Quay Zoo, and he's also a wild cat expert, as the best evidence yet that big cats do indeed roam Bodeman Moor. And this was part of another batch of information submitted to the government by local MP Paul Tyler. Theories abound. If it does exist, and many swear it does, perhaps the animal is a big cat that escaped a zoo or a private collection that was not that was not reported because it had been imported illegally. But this hypothesis is rejected by some scientists on the grounds that the numbers needed to sustain a breeding population would be too large for the food supply there. Mm. Yeah, I guess so. Some people believe the animal is a species of wild cat that's believed to have become extinct in Britain more than 100 years ago. And some, after reading reports, not just of hissing and growling, but of sounds like a woman screaming, are inclined to blame the paranormal, like maybe it's haunted cats or but, mountain lions. Mountain yeah, lions mountain scream lions like that. scream like that for sure. Yeah. It's so it makes so sense fucking scary. <laughs> that it could be that. I know. I remember your tent story. Yeah. About hearing that. I think I told that story on this podcast. You did. I I forget what episode it was in, but... Ugh. Yeah. That was fucking awful. Terrifying. Yeah. So, basically, with England being the home to so many different phantom cats, it's hard to believe that there wasn't at least one of them that probably really existed. And I'm guessing it's most likely to be an escapee. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know. It's, It's found in a lot of, like, the cryptid lore in Britain, so I had to talk about them. I could also see them just being, like, wild domestic cats. Right, like, maybe it's a, I don't know, particularly large cat. Yeah, just cats that were domestic and then, you know, just decided to, especially because there's no, like, bigger predators. Mm -hmm. It's fucking, it's paradise for a cat. Yeah, and I mean, it is an island, so. Right, right. I could see that for sure. Who knows? I mean, that photo that photo that's on here definitely looks like a domestic cat. It just cat. looks like a house cat, but like yeah. way too big. Right. Like, yeah. you know, in Adventure Time when you see Susan Strong next to Finn? That's <laughs> this cat. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking yes. about? Okay. <laughs> uh, I love you. Oh, I love you too. Um, okay. Do you want to hear about some more? Fuck yeah, I do. England? Okay, mm-hmm. the next one I'm going to talk about is boggarts. Oh, so I love this one. Boggarts are a mischievous type of English cryptid known by many different names depending on the location. A boggart is an amortal, shape-shifting non-being that takes on the form of its observer's worst fear. Harry Potter, bitch. Terrifying. Yes. Yeah. It's my favorite Harry Potter movie, too. The third one. The third one. Yeah. I agree. I mean, Sirius Black. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's. Seriously. It has everything. It has werewolves. It has mm-hmm. a hot criminal who's not yep. actually a criminal. Yep. It has time travel. Yep. Boggarts. It has, it has boggarts. It has those creepy ass fucking floating dementors. It has everything. It's, a, it's um, that's and the best it has one. Magic. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, but <laughs> goes without saying. saying. <laughs> Okay, so because of the shape-shifting ability of boggarts, in the Harry Potter universe, they say that nobody knows what a boggart looks like when it's alone. But in the actual 
English tradition, there is a description for what they look like. Really? And I'll get into that a little bit. When facing a bogger, it's best to have someone else along to try to confuse it, since facing more than one person at a time mm. makes the bogger indecisive towards determining what form it should take, and that can result in a not frightening combination of the victim's fears. <laughs> Okay. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> and then, you know, the other thing, too, is, like, if I were ever to fight a bogger, I don't think it could really do much because I'm just afraid of heights. Like, I'm terrified of being up too high and, like, that vertigo feeling when you huh. look down over a cliff. Can't do it. So, like, what would the bogger turn into? Like, a fucking cliff? And then i just not go there. i just maybe go it would. Maybe it would, like, shapeshift into... I don't know, something that goes like at your feet and then it like creates like a, an imaginary cliff under you. That would suck. <laughs> wow. Okay. Thanks. Now You're I welcome. have a new fear and it's boggarts. Mine would probably be either some type of water. Oh. But like also, how would it do that? You know? Um, it just turns into a puddle. It just. <laughs> but a really deep one (laughs) or it would probably be like i don't know maybe like a serial killer yeah that's a good one because it's it's like people that scare the fuck out of me not these like ghosts and shit it's fucking other humans (laughs) agreed entirely yep 100 percent agreed (laughs) anyway (laughs) so originally a boggart is a creature in english folklore that's either a household spirit or a more malevolent genius loki that is um and that kind of means like the geographically defined spirit Mm. and those ones inhabit fields marshes or other topographical features cool so there's like the inside boggarts and outside boggarts other names for boggarts include bugbear bugaboo bogey bogan boogeyman and boggle bugbear bugbear (laughs) bugaboo Uh. so but those are like maybe the ones that you might refer to your indoor ones like oh it must be a little bugaboo yeah <laughs> oh it's so british <laughs> yeah it's so cute so the household form causes like small mischief things disappear milk will sour dogs will like be lame and like just want to lay around all day mm-hmm. and um Boggarts inhabiting marshes or holes in the ground are often attributed to more serious evil doing, such as the abduction of children, letting your horses run free in the middle of the night, things like that. Always a little bit malevolent, the household boggart will follow its family wherever they flee, and it's said that the boggart crawls into people's beds at night and puts a clammy hand on their faces. Oh my god. Which scares the fuck out of me. Fuck that. Um, Sometimes they'll strip the bedsheets out from under them. So if you wake up and all your blankets and sheets are on the floor, it's a boggart. <laughs> Sometimes the boggart will also pull on a person's ears in their sleep. <laughs> and then hanging a horseshoe on the door of a house and leaving a pile of salt outside your bedroom are said to keep boggarts away. Okay. In some areas, such as Northumberland, it was believed that helpful household sprites called silkies or brownies could turn into malevolent boggarts if offended or ill-treated. And I'll talk a little bit more about those guys, too. Interesting. Yeah. In Northern England, at least, there was the belief that the boggart should never be named, because if it's given a name, it would not be reasoned with or persuaded and become uncontrollable and destructive. Hmm. The Book of Lancashire Folklore of 1867 makes the distinction between the house boggarts and the other outdoor types, and I think that's the oldest reference of those two separations. 
Mm-hmm. When a person would get lost in the marsh and never be seen again, people were sure that an outdoor bogger had caught the poor unfortunate guy and devoured him. And a piece of folklore concerning a lancer boggart was published in 1861, in which an author had a conversation with an elderly couple one evening about their local boggart. They claimed that the boggart was buried at a nearby bend in the road under an ash tree, along with a cockerel with a stake driven through it. Ooh. And despite being buried, the boggart was still able to create trouble. The farmer's wife, just two weeks earlier, had heard the doors banging in her farmhouse at night and then loud laughter. And she looked out to see three candles casting blue light and a creature with red burning eyes leaping about. Oh, my God. So that's fucking terrifying. Yeah. And then in the following morning, there were a bunch of cloven hooves seen outside the house. So that sounds like a devil to me. Um, yeah. And after this, the couple also claimed that the boggart had unhitched their horse and overturned their cart on a couple of occasions. And never name the boggart, the old man repeated and stated that he would never dig near its grave. <laughs> so in recent years, boggarts have become extremely popular again with their inclusion in the Harry Potter franchise. <laughs> boggarts would, at least before the Battle of Hogwarts, very commonly appear as Lord Voldemort since he re- represented the worst fear of many wizards and witches. But despite their shape-shifting abilities described in the books... Boggarts are sometimes described as being short and hairy humanoid creatures with animal-like features in their non-shape-shifting form. Others believe that nobody knows what a boggart looks like um, if nobody was there to see it, although it continued to exist, usually giving evidence of its presence by rattling, shaking, or scratching the object in which it's hiding. Boggarts particularly like confined spaces, like little drawers and like little boxes that you keep your keepsakes in. <laughs> but may also have been found lurking in woods around shadowy corners. And then I'm going to read a quote from Harry Potter. So the boggart sitting in the darkness within has not yet assumed a form. He does not yet know what will frighten the person on the other side of the door. Nobody knows what a boggart looks like when he is alone, but when I let him out, he will immediately become whatever each of us most fears. And that's Professor Lupin talking to his third year Defense Against the Dark Arts class in September 1993. And gosh, I really wish we knew who wrote those books. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Lupin is my favorite character. Really? Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's he's very just cute. He's just um he's just troubled with with his werewolfness. Yeah. But he's like such a good guy. Yeah, he was a good guy. Yeah. I always really liked McGonagall because she was like the original Virgo. <laughs> I was just about to say you probably like her because she's a fucking Virgo. <laughs> she totally is. Okay, next I'm getting into hobgoblins and brownies. So a hobgoblin or a brownie are household spirits typically appearing in folklore once considered helpful, but when the spread of Christianity o- overtook everything, since that time they've been considered more mischievous or even evil to people that are like very devout. Shakespeare identifies the character of Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream as a hobgoblin. Oh. Which is pretty cute. And a okay. hobgoblin comes from hob meaning elf in Old English, which I thought was cute. So it's like a little elf goblin. Yeah. And the earliest known use of the word hobgoblin can be traced to about 1530, although it was likely in use for some time prior to that. Hobgoblins seem to be small, hairy little men who, like their close relatives, the brownies, are often found within human dwellings doing odd jobs around the house while the family's asleep. 
Okay. Which is cute. Such chores are typically small tasks like dusting and ironing and shooing spiders out of corners. Often the only compensation necessary in return for these is food. So a lot of people will put out a little crust of bread and a little glass of milk, a thimble of milk or something for the hobgoblins. A thimble of milk? Yeah. It's, it's um, So it's like, um, kind of sounds like Dobby, like house elves. Yeah, out. totally like Dobby. In, in fact, there's a type of hobgoblin. I didn't put this research in because there were a bunch of like subtypes of hobgoblins and one type is called a Dobby. Oh, really? So that's where that comes from. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I wonder who uh, made that connection. I wonder. (laughs) And uh, while brownies are the more peaceful creatures, hobgoblins are more fond of practical jokes. They also seem to be able to shapeshift a little bit, as seen in one of Puck's monologues in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Robin Goodfellow is perhaps the most mischievous and infamous of all his kind, but many are less antagonizing. Like other fey folk, hobgoblins are easily annoyed. They can be mischievous, frightening, and even dangerous sometimes. Um, attempts to give them clothing will on- often banish them forever. So if you give Abby a sock, yeah. he'll become a free elf. Um, <laughs> though whether they're offended by that gift or are simply too proud to work in the new clothes differ from teller to teller. All so right. with All Dobby, right. it's like, oh, you gave me something. This is a good thing. But in the original... It's like, oh, you gave me a sock, and I'm offended by that, so bye. <laughs> I don't know. All right. And now, I'm going to tell you about the wood woes. Ooh. Stories of large humanoid figures that resemble apes have covered all seven continents and beyond, so it doesn't surprise me that even England has a Bigfoot tail. Oh, And my that God. is the wood woes. Sorry, that was very loud. The wood woes. <laughs> <laughs> The woos. The wood woos. <laughs> However, unlike some mentions of Bigfoot, especially in North America, this English version is much more related to the elf-like spirits that haunt the forests of its homeland. Unlike descriptions of the North American Bigfoot, the wood woos is said to be a little bit smaller and even more man-like. They're usually reported at around six or seven feet, walk on two feet, and appear like a man with gorilla-like features and thick hair covering their entire bodies. The hair is almost uniformly described as medium brown with an orange or red tint, and wood woes translates roughly to wood man. So the wood woes imagery is evident in England from the 8th all the way to the 16th century, and there's like depictions of these men of the forest, which seemed rarely to be women. So they're depicted in a variety of forms, sometimes in dramas, other times in medieval paintings, and illuminated in manuscripts as well. The term wood woes occurs in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which was written in 1390, but figures similar to the European wild man occur worldwide from even earlier times. The earliest recorded example of this type of character is the Enkidu of the ancient Mesopotamian epic of Gilgamesh. So Bigfoot's been around, my dude. Yeah, the Did Mesopotamian you... civilization's yeah. pretty much the oldest. The OG. One, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then there's even, I didn't know this until today, there's Bigfoot in the fucking Bible. What? So in the description of Nebuchadnezzar II in the book of Daniel, 2nd century BC, this book was greatly influenced by the medieval European concepts of the wild man as well, I guess. Holy and shit. Daniel 4 depicts God humbling the Babylonian king for his boastfulness. He's stricken mad and ejected from human society, and then he begins growing hair all over his body and lives like a wild beast. (laughs) So 
Bigfoot goes back to the fucking Bible, and I will be telling everyone that for the rest of my life. That is fucking wild. Yep. Yups, it is. I'm Yups. so glad. Yups, it is. I'm so glad I found this out. <laughs> I can't believe they didn't talk about that at the Bigfoot Museum. Huh. You know? I feel like I should go in and talk, tell them that. I don't know. Anyways. Yeah. Have, <laughs> tell them something that they don't know. Yeah. Did you know? <laughs> Bigfoot's in the Bible? Bigfoot's in the fucking Bible. Bigfoot's Jesus? <laughs> Bigfoot is the Lord. Okay. <laughs> Reports and sightings of the Woodwoves and their habitations claim that they carried or had access to clubs, primitive pottery-like bowls, and even simple bow and arrows. If threatened, they would sometimes raid small villages, taking their livestock or freeing their livestock, and maybe even taking a young maiden or two. Several folk traditions about the wild man correspond with ancient practices and beliefs. Notably, peasants in Switzerland tried to capture the wild man by getting him drunk and tying him up in hopes that he'd give them his wisdom in exchange for freedom. <laughs> One of the most infamous sightings in Britain came long after the 16th century. In Salford, Lancashire, England, Deborah Hatswell claimed she saw the wood woes in 1982. Sandra, now a known Bigfoot researcher, was in a park at the young age of 15. In an overgrown section of the park, she and her friends noticed a wood woes out of the corner of their eye. When they reacted to seeing him, the wood woes escaped back into the woods. According to Sandra, the wood woes' expressions seemed more confused and perhaps even scared. And Sandra Aww. claimed at this moment she realized the creature, although frightening to her, was no monster and may have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Aww. Pretty cute. Little wood woes. Yeah. And that she went on to become a Bigfoot researcher, which is pretty cool. Wow. That was a pivotal moment in her life. Yeah. <laughs> And an even more recent event occurred in 2014, just outside of Dorchester, and two members of the British Bigfoot Research Organization began an investigation in the Yellowham Woods. Over the course of two evenings, they spent time clapping and like speaking to try to lure the woodwows out of hiding. They reported that they heard responsive tree knocks, as well as something walking softly by their campsite. They also heard whooping howls. To them, this confirmed that there are still wood woes traipsing about in English forests, but that the, they're just maybe a little shy. A little, little traipsing. Yeah. Traipsing with their tree knocks. Yeah. And then, here, and then here you go. The term wood woes, or simply woeses, is also used by J.R.R. Tolkien to describe a fictional race of wild men who are of what? Druidian origins in his books of Middle-earth. Oh. So according to Tolkien's legends, other men, including the Rohirrim, mistook the wood woes for goblins or other wood creatures and referred to them as pukal men or goblin men. And he allows the fictional possibility that this Druidian wood woes were the, the actual origin of the wild men of traditional folklore from, like, later on. Wow. Yep. So... Gerald God, I love that so much. Does know about Bigfoot. <laughs> of course Boom. he does. <laughs> and that is everything I have. Um, my sources for this episode include Top Ten Cryptids Living in England by Ricky Rodson, published in Exemplar. Um, www.thebestofexmoor.co.uk blog on Beast of Exmoor. Thecornwalls.co.uk myths and legends blog beast of bodman entry 
and then the Harry Potter fandom.com wiki, of course, <laughs> and then astonishinglegends.com, their entry on the Woodwows, and then Wonderful. Wikipedia. Of course. And fandom.wiki.com, as always. Of course. So that's what I got. I hope you enjoyed it. It was great. Thank you. I'm tired of You're talking welcome. now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's crazy because there's there's so much more. There are. This isn't even the beginning of them. One percent of the iceberg. Yeah, there was all sorts of things. There was rat men that live in the sewers in London. There was oh Jenny God. Green Teeth. Oh yeah. There's all sorts of crazy guys. British cryptid mythologies here. I love it so much. Me too. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for telling your little cryptid stories on England. Thank you so um, much. It was fantastic. And I think we are to save the listeners from listening to uh, an episode that's going to be probably like two and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. I think we are going to take a break and have England in two parts. Yeah. So yeah. stay tuned for Alex's episode on England. And can you give him just a little taste of what you might be covering yeah of course so i'm gonna be covering all the spooky hauntings yes so you got a lot of like cute little animals and cryptids this episode Uh you're gonna have some weird dark fucking shit scary shit scary shit it's, okay. It's only it, it makes sense coming from me. It, so. it does. I mean, that's why we work so well together. <laughs> I know it's fantastic. It truly is. Yeah. So I'm gonna be covering like some hotels, some castles. Oh. Um. And yeah, be prepared because some of it's really fucking gnarly, and it's gonna be great. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss this. All <laughs> right. Well, I hope you have a week that is not too spooky, but just spooky. A fuck enough. A fuck enough. A fuck enough. and uh keep your eyes peeled queens and i'm really excited to share what i have for you in two weeks Woohoo! all right love you bye bye